TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. It's Minnesota Sports Rewind. Hey everyone, welcome in to another episode of Minnesota Sports Rewind, where we do deep dives into prominent Minnesota sports events. Can be games, can be trades, can be moments. Whatever we want, whatever's prominent in Minnesota sports history. My name is Phil Mackey, and this episode is all about the Herschel Walker trade and all of the different things that led up to it and the aftermath and the significance in franchise and NFL history. And our crew for this episode, my co-host on Mackey and Jeb with Rami and former Vikings beat writer during the Mike Tice and Brad Childress eras, Judd Zolgad. And our resident Minnesota sports historian here at Score North and trivia master, Manny Hill. Gentlemen, are you ready to dive into maybe the biggest fleecing in American pro sports history? Sure didn't feel like it at the time, man. In 1989, <laughs> I remember where I was. I thought, my, they got Herschel Walker. It's going to be great. Where, where, how old were you in 19? You were like 19. Co- college age? Okay. I was 19. I was interning at the North Stars. I was in Met Center. I think it was the day of a game maybe or something. And I remember being in the press box in, in the afternoon and the television was on ESPN, if I'm not mistaken. And like they came on with Herschel Walker has been acquired by the Vikings and everyone in this town, everyone in this town, I'm, I'm sure now there's people like, oh, I didn't like the trade. I didn't like the trade. <laughs> Everybody didn't care what they gave up. And think about this too. You know, Herschel Walker to be coming here, right? Like how, how many names? Because his name was, you know, sports royalty at the time. Herschel Walker's coming to your town. Everybody thought, Oh boy! Final piece to the puzzle. Yeah, Super so, Bowl. Here we come. So in that, and by the way, Manny and I were both like it was like we were talking before we turned on the mics. It's, Herschel Walker was was my first. Herschel Walker and Anthony Carter were my first two Vikings that I remember really loving as a kid. Yeah. So I was I was a kid when this happened. Yeah, I was five years old and had no no real understanding of football at that time. It wasn't until a few years later when I really sort of got a sense of understanding football and really like following the Vikings, but I knew about Herschel Walker and mm-hmm. I knew he was like the biggest thing in the NFL at that time. And I actually remember I was telling Phil this before, before we started uh, recording this, I had one of those little figurines, you know, those football, for, they have them for like basketball players too. One of those little Herschel Walker Vikings figurines where he's just like, it's like one, He's like one start, pose. starting lineup ones. Like yeah. Those, yeah, those are great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had one of those when I was probably I want to say about seven, maybe. Sure. It was towards Herschel, the tail end of Herschel's time with sure. the Vikings. But yeah, and I just remember that being like kind of the big deal for me, like as a kid. Like, yeah, I got a Herschel Walker figurine type of thing. He was also he wasn't Barry Sanders good or Christian Okoye good on Tecmo Super Bowl, but he was he was one of the better running backs on the video game Tecmo Super Bowl oh, sure. in the early nineties. And at Georgia he was a superhero. I mean he was great. And and don't forget too, his professional career did not start in the National Football League. It started in the USFL where he was the linchpin to an upstart league and the New Jersey Generals owned by Donald J. Trump. That's right. Ah. That's where he started his career. So that's a good segue just to set the scene here for this and then get through our summary events, and then we'll get to four or five key questions here on this episode. But he was 27 years old at the time of the trade, which took place in October of 1989. He was coming off a season with 2,000 yards of total offense with the Dallas Cowboys the year before. Like Judd said, he's one of the greatest college running backs of all time at Georgia. And his USFL stats, this is the first time I actually, in doing research for this episode, 
I knew that he started in the USFL. I knew he was you know a legend in college. Did you guys, you guys ever look at his USFL stats? 1985 with the New Jersey Generals, 438 rushing attempts. <laughs> Let that sink in for a second. 438. The 80s were different, attempts. man. <laughs> oh lots God, of lots of cocaine and rushing attempts back then. Okay. <laughs> Just piles of cocaine and handoffs all throughout the 80s. <laughs> 2,411 rushing yards. He also caught 37 passes for 467 yards and 22 total touchdowns. Obviously, teams were not doing as much due diligence in terms of like, all right, how much tread is left on these tires? So the USFL didn't care. They, they were just like, we got a marquee guy. And the NFL didn't really care either. No, so, so the Vikings in that 1989 season, the Vikings leading up to the trade, because it, was, it, it, it wasn't an off-season trade. It was in the middle of the season. The yep. Vikings were 3-2 and two, heading into week six. They were coming off back-to-back playoff appearances. They kind of had this crescendo. They went to the NFC Championship game in 1987. They, they took a bit of a step back in the postseason, but they actually went, I think it was 9-7 and seven in the year that they went and played the 49ers in the championship game. And then they went 11-5 and five in 1988 and were building one of the best defenses in the NFL, but they couldn't get over that postseason hump. And so, you know, so some pressure was at least mounting to some degree to push the team over the top, win a Super Bowl. Meanwhile, the Cowboys had just blown everything sky high. They're coming out of the Tom Landry era, into the Jimmy Johnson era. And going into week six, they hadn't won a game yet. They were in the middle of a 1-15 rebuild season. And so they not only started dangling Herschel Walker, they actually dangled Michael Irvin as well because Jimmy Johnson was just trying to think, how do we – we just need assets. We need young players. We need assets. And it was a conversation with Al Davis. He was dangling Michael Irvin to the – at the time, the Los Angeles Raiders. And Al Davis was the one that said, are you sure you want to trade Michael Irvin? Who, who, who are you going to throw passes to? And so they wound up pivoting to Herschel Walker. Wouldn't that have been something if Michael Irvin would have ended up with the, with the Raiders man. and Al Davis? Oh and Al gosh. Davis, man, where's the killer instinct? You've got to make that trade. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of shocking, actually. So uh, the summary of events here, and this is, this is I'm, I'm pulling this from just internet research. Wikipedia has a, has a full page dedicated to the Herschel Walker trade. Uh, four games into the season, Jimmy Johnson had taken over for Tom Landry. He dangles Michael Irvin to the Raiders, but Al Davis says, hey, man, I'm going to do you a solid here. You should hang on to hang on to Michael Irvin. So a number of teams contacted the Cowboys when they announced that they would trade Herschel Walker. The Giants expressed interest. The Falcons entered negotiations. The Browns made a serious offer. And Jimmy Johnson is quoted as saying, the Browns offered us a player, a couple of future number one draft picks, and three number two draft picks. The Cowboys felt this was a favorable offer, but they also felt that if another team were to enter the discussion, they could generate a bidding war and thereby get even more compensation. So Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones decide to contact other clubs to generate buzz and create leverage and a bidding war. So they contact the Vikings general manager at the time, Mike Lynn, and Johnson told Lynn if he's going to trade Walker to Cleveland that that afternoon, he said he was going to trade Walker to Cleveland that afternoon and that Minnesota had until 6.30 p.m., to offer more players, draft picks, conditional picks, provisions, etc. And the Vikings came back with this package. This is the famous package. This is uh, October 12, 1989. The trade went down, and the Vikings get Herschel Walker, two third-round picks. They wind up, because Darren Nelson put up a roadblock, and so they wind up, uh, the, the, the Chargers got involved as a third team. So the Vikings wind up trading Nelson to Dallas, who then didn't want to play for Dallas because they were crappy, and so they wind up sending him to the Chargers. The Vikings get a fifth-round pick. 
and a tenth round pick. So Herschel Walker, two thirds, a fifth, and a tenth. The Cowboys received a first, a second, a sixth, and four players, four defensive players, in addition to Darren Nelson. Linebackers Jesse Solomon and, and David Howard, cornerback Isaac Holt, and defensive end Alex Stewart. All right. Cool. Done deal, right? No. Not so fast. No. There was a clause in the trade that said if Dallas cuts or trades any of the players they get back from the Vikings, they would receive draft pick compensation for each of those players. So they cut or trade all five players and receive two more first-round picks, two more second-round picks, and a third-round pick, bringing the total haul for Herschel Walker to three first-round picks, three second-round picks, a third, and a sixth. Unprecedented. And Jimmy Johnson, who who was a college guy at Miami, yeah, very successful, but was seen as sort of uh, by an NFL people as being like, oh, this guy's a hot shot. We'll show him. Completely outsmarted Mike Lynn, and that's where the story starts to me. Because I think Lynn thought to himself, "Oh, I'll show this guy. I'll make this trade. He'll like my players. I'm trading him decent players." And Johnson got those guys thinking. These guys ain't ever going to play for my team, and I don't care. But how do you even get those provisions put in the language of, of a trade? Like how <laughs> that that is how how uh, I, I think they call it new law is made by making a trade like that, so no one will ever do that again. But at the time, I can't articulate enough. It was Herschel Walker, right? So like you were thinking to yourself, you know, th- think of the biggest superstar or stars of when when. You guys were like 12 or 13, and what you would have given at that mm-hmm. time to get. So you're thinking to yourself, this is great. But Jimmy Johnson completely outdid Mike Lynn, and the Vikings really thought that Herschel Walker was the piece to a Super Bowl puzzle. They really thought that. On that October day, they were convinced that Herschel Walker was going to step in here and not just be good, but be enough to lift this Vikings team to a Super Bowl within the next year or so because they felt like they had everything else right yes. they had the defense and obviously they had the dolman millard defensive front and they just felt like herschel was that that one stud superstar running back was the one missing piece that they had which is but, hilarious yeah well think about like phil you're talking about the the offer that the browns had on the table imagine 30 were what 31 years later now imagine teams trying to have a bidding war of this magnitude over a running back. Yeah, even the, the, the best. The even Vikings can only best... hope with Dalvin Cook as we <laughs> right. record this. If you're listening to this later on, we don't know what happens with Dalvin Cook yet, but they would. I'm sure they would take 19 draft picks or whatever. <laughs> it's 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 just it's unbelievable to, to even imagine that this was actually a thing. But yeah, I mean, to, for Jimmy Johnson to pull off that deal, and I, I it's it's just mind boggling to me that. You could pull off a deal like this, and you're, you're, the provision is that if you cut these players, you get you actually receive draft picks for cutting players. And, and by the way, we're not talking about, you know, it, it wasn't like uh, Anthony Carter and his prime players. We're, we're talking about like solid defensive players, you know, a couple of guys. Mm-hmm. You know, Keith Millard wasn't traded to the Dallas Cowboys well, here. It wasn't. It wasn't Chris Dolman. Here's the one thing that that Johnson did that outsmarted Lynn and the Vikings by so much too. Think back to then, though. Okay, I don't think, and I might be wrong, but I don't think in 1989 anyone had considered the art of the tank. 
you know, at that time, oh, my God, you're terrible. Get good, right? Like, get good as fast as possible. So I think what the Vikings thought that day is, we're giving Dallas some pretty solid players. They're awful on defense. They'll take these players and play them to try and, let's say, win, in their minds, five games. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Johnson's thinking, one win? That's outstanding. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. But And now it's common. I mean, now we got teams right and left being like, one win, that's great. Four wins, that's great. But back then, you didn't think that way. And so the Vikings, I don't think, ever entertained the notion that Dallas wouldn't take these guys and try and win four or five games. And with the draft picks, you know, the, the, it's, it's common knowledge at this point, but Dallas uses the draft picks to acquire guys like Emmett Smith, Darren Woodson, Russell Maryland, Alvin Harper, uh, I think Alonzo Highsmith. They spun was one a of bunch of picks. trades too, right? With yes. with those picks by packaging them and sending them elsewhere. And, and the Vikings were without a first or a second round pick until 1993. And and we'll get into we have all kinds I of key it questions. Well. The draft was a very fun if you were a Vikings following. Man, but but here's here's and, and and obviously the Cowboys go on to win a bunch of Super Bowls and uh, the Vikings did not. And Herschel Walker actually never even rushed for a thousand yards in in any of his three seasons with the Vikings. So here's key question number one for you guys: Is this the worst fleecing in NFL history? I've got two other potential contenders here that I want to compare it to: the Redskins in 2002. Or I'm sorry, 2012. They wind up uh, they wind up trading up for Robert Griffin the third. And I would argue that Herschel Walker at least gave the Vikings more in three years than RG. I mean, RG three had one decent season, and then his knee blows up, right? Yep. And and the Rams in return receive the number six overall pick, so they just they move down a couple spots, a second round pick, a, a first round pick in 2013, and then another first round pick in 2014 for a guy who was a bust of a starting quarterback in RG three. So they wind up getting Ooh. three first round picks and a second round pick. For, for really, like, nothing. They just had to move down a couple spots and not draft RG3. It's pretty bad. I don't know if it's as bad as the Herschel Walker trade, but it's pretty bad. What's the second one? The second one is the 1999 New Orleans Saints and Mike Ditka in his oh, Hawaiian I knew shirt. Yep, I knew you were going to Trading yeah, yeah. the entire draft. They traded all of their I picks. I think this is the worst one. So here's what happens. Yeah. I think is, it takes the cake. So, so they... <laughs> So the, and again, it involved the Redskins. The Redskins were the team that, that were the beneficiaries of all these draft picks. The Saints wanted Ricky Williams, and so they trade literally their entire two, their entire 1999 draft. First round pick, third round pick, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. They might have kept it. There might have been like a stray pick in there somewhere, but and their 2000 first round pick and their 2000 third round pick. And the Saints were actually they had Ricky Williams for like three years, and they weren't terrible. But the bad news was they were terrible in the first year. They were three and thirteen, and Mike Dicka got fired. <laughs> <laughs> and so, probably deserved to. So he didn't even get to see out the Ricky Williams era. Why are teams doing this for running backs? Why were they doing this for running backs? I don't understand it. Manny, it was it was I know it was I a don't, different time. I don't mean to sound goodness. really, really old, like an old fogey, but it was a different time. We yeah. va- we valued them so much differently and and saw them as as potentially final pieces. I mean now we see them as replaceable and they largely are Mm -hmm. but you know 31 years ago Herschel Walker like you thought add him to the offense and and this is going to sound weird now but the other thing about uh, at that time 31 years back quarterbacks were important but not as important as they are today and so yes 
your quarterback had to be good, but certainly didn't have to be great. And if you had Herschel Walker back there with your quarterback, you thought to yourself, you're on the way. Well, I would, and I wouldn't even tweak what you just said. Quarterbacks were just as important, but teams didn't realize it yet. Teams didn't. Well, the value of them, right. Like teams didn't. And part of it was the way that the game was structured and the rules. And it was, it's a lot easier in today's NFL to throw for 300 yards without getting your head knocked off by Deacon Jones or somebody, right? <laughs> you know, get your, get your helmet slapped off your neck. But I think that this is a good segue into key question number two. Why was it that for that period in the NFL, well, really like the history of the NFL leading up to, I would say the early to mid nineties is where we really started to see, okay, Warren Moon was slinging it around. Joe Montana was doing his West Coast thing in the eighties and Dan Marino, but then you had you know John Elway coming into the late eighties, early nineties. You, you started to see, you started to see teams leaning on the passing game more often. Why was it that teams were so reliant on bell cow running backs and not even really exploring the idea of more? efficient passing games, right? Outside of Bill yeah. Walsh and the San Francisco 49. Why did it take so long in NFL history for us to get off the bell cow running back and into the aerial attack, I guess? I think part of it, and Judd, tell me if I'm wrong on this, is that there were... If you look around the NFL today, there's some good running backs, but it it feels like, to me, like back in the 80s, maybe that there were a lot more like superstar running backs because you had the Earl Campbells and you had uh they were there like it was the big man on campus right yeah it was a running back in the 80s it was very it was it wasn't the quarterback 70s too OJ Simpson yeah yeah Eric Dickerson Dickerson, yeah it just seemed like there were the, the the running backs at that time were there were just so many more superstar caliber running backs that just you Gave the ball to them 30 times a game, and they ran for 15, 1,600 yards. And sports, I mean, just and this is not just um, exclusive football, you guys. Sports are just slow to adapt. They're slow yeah. to, to adjust. So to Phil's point, look at the coaches back then. They weren't eager to adapt to, I want to feature my QB. And that's why I've always said that Moss changed the game, too. Because when Moss started playing, the league said, holy cow, we got something here. And so the rules started to morph. But, Phil, to what you said before, this was still an era where you could knock quarterbacks' heads off. You could Basically, the running back was the big man on campus who was also strong and could take the beating. That's why the carries now seem ridiculous, but back then didn't, because it was a league where he jacked them up, was, oh, that's great, that's yeah. awesome. The quarterback got concussed, oh, that's cool, his bell was wrong, right? And, and so we didn't. We didn't consider like the quarterback to be this tough guy or this tough enough guy. And so if you could hand the ball off 800 times, that was great. And so it was, but I think it also comes back to, to the fact that if you look at coaches and coordinators from that time and probably executives too, it's not like they were super enlightened. It's not like, you know, Bill Walsh could have been the start of a lot of people being like, what's he doing? Instead, it was the start of some people saying that and some people being like, this Bill Walsh thing, it's, it's cute and it's working yeah. for now, but it ain't going to well, work for long. And I, lo- I love the like what you just said. Think about the old coaches in today's game, right? Bill Belichick is getting pretty old, and, and Andy Reid wins a Super Bowl, and he's in his 60s. And Pete like Carroll. The, but, the, but those Pete Carroll, the guys in their 60s, these old codger coaches, well, okay, they, they came up still in the early night. They came up after Bill Walsh, and they came up with – Elway and Marino and and Steve Young, right? At least at least they came up in a passing era. 
When you look, so Jerry Burns was the Vikings coach in 1989 when they pulled this Herschel Walker trade. And Jerry Burns' first job as an assistant was in 1951 at Hawaii. You know, like J- Jerry Burns literally was coaching leather helmeted players. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, yeah, and he obviously evolved and adapted throughout the 70s, yep. 80s, and 90s. But your old codger coaches were still at least ingrained early in their career in the 50s and 60s in the leather helmet era. But what you just brought up dovetails perfectly into where this went, and that's this. Bernsey was the OC for Lombardi's Packers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then came here and worked with Bud and is considered by many to be the originator of the West Coast offense, not Bill Walsh. Now, where we're going to land here is, okay, you've seen Herschel Walker play, right? Highlights of Herschel Walker. If you were to consider Herschel being part of your scheme, what's the last scheme that you would be like, I think Herschel Walker would be great in that scheme? Yeah, he's the West Coast scheme. It's mm-hmm. funny because he actually caught quite a few passes, but not in the way that Roger Craig would catch passes. And the the stats of that time were like plow ahead, plow. The West Coast was all about let's send the guy out, let's do this, let's do that. Creative. It mm-hmm. it, it was great. But what's funny is Mike Lynn basically saw the final piece of the puzzle and we were all too excited to care at the time. And went, I think, to Jerry Burns and was like, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to work. And Jerry probably said. Burns, you didn't like it. Burns, probably said, do you know what I run here? And that's the thing. Mike Lynn, not really a football guy. Yeah. More of a marketing genius and was around football and was an eccentric. But, you know, I don't think Rick Spielman would go out and get Herschel Walker for Jerry Burns. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I actually, I, I dug up some of the bell cow numbers from the 1980s because the, the oh, 1980s yeah. so are just fun. a hilarious era of football it's <laughs> the neck roll era of football mm-hmm. 1983 so well just to put this into context in the 2019 nfl season only two running backs went over 300 carries and just barely so in, in both of these guys you would consider i would say the bell cows of today's nfl Derrick henry ran the ball 303 times he's as throwback as it gets yep. in today's nfl and Zeke Elliott ran the ball 301 times for Dallas. So a couple guys who just got to 300 carries. 1983, Eric Dickerson, 390 carries. John Riggins, 375 carries. Oh, John Riggins, man. He and Zonka, just I love a road those guys. Grader, man. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Three yards and a cigarette and then go on home the sidelines. And just drink. <laughs> just a gallon of whiskey after each game. 1984, is it James Wilder or Wilder? James Wilder, Wilder. I think it's Wilder. Wilder. Yeah. Four Tampa Bay. 407 carries. Also, Walter Payton, kind of in the twilight of his career, had 381 carries in 1984. Yeah. 1985, Gerald Riggs, 397 carries. Marcus Allen, 380 carries. I love Gerald Riggs. Gerald Riggs was great. 1986, Eric Dickerson, 404 carries. 1988, Herschel Walker, 360. Eric Dickerson, 381. 1989, Christian Okoye, 370 carries for the Chiefs. Oh. Like, it was just like you had these these bell cows, man. Just carrying guys on Okoye. Okoye, guys would just jump on his back. He'd, he he was like Earl Campbell, just carrying him right down the field. Amazing. Lower your helmet and just pop everybody, man. Wow. And so that's you know that's what the Vikings were trading for. They were trading yeah. for the new bell cow in his prime, Herschel Walker. And yep. so... Key question number three, it doesn't work out the way they want. They actually, they, I think they finished 8-8 eight and eight in, uh, I closed the page, 8-8 eight and eight in 1989. They went 6-10 in 1990. It was their worst season in, in the decade, the worst season since the Les Steckel 
season of 1983. Yep. Uh, they did bounce back and had a better season in 1991, but they basically they, they did nothing in the playoffs. They didn't win games. How will you guys remember the Herschel Walker era? Like, would you classify it as total train wreck? Was it, you know, how would you how would you describe the Herschel Walker era now that you look back? It's train wreck because of the trade itself. Uh, but I will say this, and I'm going off the top of my head on this one. If I'm not mistaken, Herschel Walker's first game was against the Packers in the Metrodome, yeah. and he was what returned the opening kickoff, mm-hmm. and his shoe came off, and he got like what fifty yards, sixty yards, yep. and we all thought, here we go. Here we go. Didn't he finish with like 150 yards on the ground? Huge, in that yeah, game or and it's the Packers. Like yeah. Now the Packers were bad back then, but still, it's the Packers, and you're beating the snot out of the Packers, and you're thinking, "This is." I'll always remember the anticipation of 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 that game going into that game, and then the payoff of that game, and the feeling of. Man, do the Vikings look good! And at that time, you have no idea that they're going to lose all these draft picks. I don't even know at that time. That you really cared because the draft in 1989 is obviously not what the draft is now. So you were like, okay, whatever. And then it just slowly started to go downhill. But the problem went back to the, the fact that they got this bell cow, carry it, carry it, carry it running back for a coach whose system was good but didn't fit that. 18 carries, 148 yards in his Vikings debut for Herschel Walker. Packers, right? Packers. And that was, and that was, Packers, and that was yep. the peak. That was basically But the that's peak. what I'll always Herschel. remember is that that game and thinking to myself, man, does this look good. See, can, can I say, it, obviously it didn't work out and, and Dallas fleeced the Vikings, but shouldn't the effect have been worse on the Vikings franchise? That's what I was wondering, too. Because they, you look at some of these, just to go back to a couple of the other fleecing trades that we mentioned earlier in the show here. The Saints wind up firing their head coach, and they had a couple seasons in which they went. I think they went ten and six and flirted with five hundred. But then they were just dormant until Drew Brees got there. Basically, six years later, mm-hmm. Washington with RG three was a total disaster. Yeah, they wind up. They went to the playoffs once, and then the next couple years, like he gets hurt. They wind up. They wind up buried at three and thirteen and four and twelve for a couple of years, and they made the playoffs once with Kirk Cousins, and then yeah, like ever since then it's just been a disaster. But usually, you think, man, you give up that many draft picks, and not only are you firing people, but and by the way, like the Vikings eventually transitioned to new GM Denny Green. Birdsy so got fired too after. Birdsy was also, he was also pretty old at the time, yeah, and but I mean things went downhill then. But their worst season was six and ten, and then they went on to actually make the playoffs in eight of nine years throughout the rest of the decade. Like it should have crippled I them more, shouldn't it? My feeling is this: because yes, the, the the answer to your question, Phil, is yes. Um, Denny Green, who got, got the job here from Stanford in '92, was really good. Denny Green did a yeah. hell of a job. He didn't have a playoff success, and eventually, until the Moss thing and the debacle, obviously in the '98 NFC title game. Uh, but you know, there, there was a time period in the mid '90s where we basically got tired of twins like playoff appearances. Well, you're not going to the playoffs and winning, but there was also starting in '92. Denny did a hell of a job and took that team, which did have talent, but, you know, no first-round draft picks for yeah. quite a while. He took that team to the playoffs continually, I think, 92, 93, 94. They missed in 95 back in 96. But I think you got to give a large tip of the cap to the job that Green did because Green got here and was a hell of an offensive coach and I think was a pretty good personnel guy and made some really, really smart moves. 
his first year, Danny's first year, ninety two, they won eleven and five, right? Did they win did they win the division that I don't year? remember if they won the division. They lost to Washington in the yeah. first round of the playoffs. But the point was but they were nobody good. expected them to be in the playoffs right. in ninety two. I think it should have brought them further below six and ten, losing all those draft picks at some point. And so for Denny to come and pick up the pieces he did a good job. and and not have this thing go off the rails. Like they in theory, you lose a trade like that, and then Herschel Walker goes away and and plays for Philadelphia. You should be like five and eleven for five years, right? So maybe we when I'd never thought of it this way, maybe because I was seven years old when Denny Green took over. But we look back at Denny Green, and I think we give him some credit because hey, you guys went to the playoffs a lot, and then the Randy Moss season was a lot of fun. But ultimately. He just uh, he botched the '98 game, and I, I don't. I think we remember Denny Green in the Denny Green era as man, what what could have been, and we kind of remember it in a bit of a negative way sometimes. But to the point you just laid out, for him to pick up the pieces with zero first and second round picks on the roster between 1990 and 1992, and for them to immediately go 11 and five and then make the playoffs that many years in a row, I mean that's like one of the more underrated accomplishments maybe in in Vikings history. I think people look at this trade as so lopsided, I think it has more to do with the success that the Cowboys went on to have afterwards versus anything that the Vikings did after. Because to Phil's point, the Vikings didn't completely fall apart despite getting completely fleeced in this deal. But then you look at the flip side of it, you look at the Cowboys go on to win three Super Bowls in a four-year stretch with Jimmy Johnson and then Barry Switzer coming in a couple of years later. That's what makes this trade, I think, seem so lopsided because of all of the success that the Cowboys had in the 90s versus the Vikings just completely falling apart, which they didn't do. I do think, though, that what the Cowboys did might be the first clear tank, the first clear cut we want to lose. No, you don't get it. No, you think I'm going to take your players and play them to win games? You're crazy. I want your assets back, and that's not – the players. So I, I think what Johnson did was he sort of set the template for sometimes being terrible is a really good idea. When did teams start caring about draft picks more? When did fans start caring? Because you know, I feel like, again, I, I grew up watching football in the early to mid-90s, and the draft became a huge thing in that era. And, that's, and then the internet age gives us access to knowing who some of these prospects are, yeah. the mock draft era. And now everyone, like everyone who's picked in the first round, especially the first six or seven quarterbacks, are all household names if you watch college football. But clearly, the Vikings front office didn't value those draft picks, or they would have thought ahead on this and said, whoa, those are valuable assets. We're not, we're not going to let you just cut that linebacker and give you a first-round pick. It was literally just like, oh, whatever. Just, yeah, I guess if you cut them, we'll, we'll give you these picks, we'll right? Draft pick, yeah. <laughs> but, well, I think ESPN started to show the draft in 82, if I'm not mistaken, and it became a very cult thing, like, the cult was big as far as, oh, man, this is cool. But I think as far as the common, oh, my gosh, there's a premium on these draft picks and they're so important, that probably didn't start until the 90s where, where it became this just very common thing for fans to be like, oh, a first-round draft pick, a second-round draft pick, that means a lot. I would say it was the 90s w- when you graduated from there being a strong cult of draft nicks, as we used to call them, to being the public perception. But I also think teams, you know, Again, Mike Lynn was GM, but Mike Lynn was not like this true football guy. You know, not Mr. Football-y football draft picks mean something to me. Mike Lynn was interested in doing things like selling tickets, making a splash, making a name for Mike Lynn. Mm-hmm. You know, sports were so different because 
now it's so structured and you've got your president of this of operations right and and ordinarily ordinarily you think that person's pretty smart especially savvy to the sport that they're working on um football that wasn't always the case now the the Vikings do go back to the 70s with Jim Finks as their GM, who's in Canton and was a great GM. But, you know, Mike Lynn was very much a guy, I think, who said, I can make a huge splash here. And he didn't give thought to, and by the way, I'm potentially going to mortgage the future, potentially, because he really didn't, I guess. Um, where now, you know, if somebody called Rick Spielman now, it's like, well, I mean, heck, okay. Let's say let's say somebody called Rick Spielman uh, tomorrow and said, I will trade you a great young quarterback for potentially six draft picks. I'm guessing Rick Spielman says no to that. Yeah. And that's a quarterback in 2020. Yeah, which is like that's probably the one position where you should consider making a New Orleans Saints-like trade. But if you're wrong, then obviously you've set your And I don't think anyone back. now has the guts to do that, though. Yeah. So, all right, key, key question number four, I believe, we're on here. The late 80s, early 90s Vikings, so that the end of the Jerry Burns era and then maybe even the baton handoff to, to Denny Green, did that era underachieve not going to a Super Bowl? You went to an NFC Championship game 1987, and you had an 11-5 and season in 1988. But when you go back and look at that roster, and Chris Dolman was just put into the Hall of Fame, and John Randall came along in the, in the early part of the 90s, and Joey Browner and Keith Millard and Studwell. I mean, the, the the names on defense alone. And then offensively, you wind up with Chris Carter. Anthony Carter was a wonderful wide receiver for, for a while. Herschel Walker was a talent, right? Yeah, One of the best running backs in the NFL. That defense, Randall McDaniel got drafted in like 1990 or 1991. And I'm probably Steve Jordan. I'm missing some names here. You know, I, I, I just feel like. Boy, that we don't talk, we talk we talk so much about the missed opportunities in the seventies and the Forcer Bulls, and then we talk about the missed opportunities in the late nineties and the Brett Favre year in two thousand nine, and it and we have to go pretty far down the list to get to those late eighties and early nineties teams that like had a, they had a Hall of Famers on the roster, man. Like those defenses were yeah. among the best in the NFL for that era. It's it's really interesting. I I do think that. I tend to think the NFC was really, really, really tough at that time because you still had, certainly in the late 80s, in 88, 89, 90, you still had Montana at the top of his game in San Francisco. And even if Montana were to get injured, Steve Young would step in and just did a phenomenal job. And, you know, Washington was really good, but Joe Gibbs still leading that. The Giants. Yeah, the Giants. The Bears were still pretty good with Ditka. You know, I, I think Buddy Ryan had already went on to Philadelphia, and Philadelphia, Philadelphia. Buddy Ryan had taken Philadelphia and Randall Cunningham, and that defense was really good with Reggie White and and uh, and Brown and those guys. So, yeah, I mean, the Vikings were right there in that mix, I feel like, but it just seemed like that conference was just going to be so hard to get through because there were so many loaded teams at that time. I honestly feel, um, in retrospect now talking about it, that by the time they made the Walker trade, the window was closed. Mm-hmm. They just didn't know it, and we didn't. I'd be very okay. Here's the thing: I'd be very curious to go back to the '87 season, and if you could remove the lockout because they made no attempt to be good for three replacement games, and they lost all three. And that team, which was a very good team, and obviously went to the conference title game, went eight and seven in the regular season. If you could go back and remove that lockout and allow that team in full to play its full schedule, 
I think there's a real chance they get home field. That means you're at the Metrodome. That changes. And I'm not guaranteeing something here. Yeah. But if we're going to go back and and hypothesize about what might have been at that time, because I think Herschel just joined the team too late. And I so so they thought, oh, man, let's take this one last shot. It's probably like, ah, guys, it's too late now. But if you go back and look at the success, ultimately, of that 87 team when it was playing together and the 88 team, which won 11 games, those were probably your two cracks. And San Francisco did go 13-2, and two, so they, you know, obviously they would have had to win the three replacement games and they maybe do more to get a home field situation there. But, yeah, when you start to think about, okay, what could you have... To me, I look at those late 80s, early 90s teams, and it's the classic example of if you just had a better quarterback even, right? If you and, had Montana, yeah. And if you, I mean, yeah. if you had someone other, because you're, you're winding down the Tommy Kramer era, Wade Wilson was a, sort of a decade-long backup caliber guy for the Vikings. And actually, the good segue into the next key question here. What happens if they don't make that trade? And I have a scenario I want to run by you guys here. Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. All right, stick with me here. So the Vikings were... They were they were mostly quarterback starved. I mean, you could argue that two thirds of the league was quarterback starved in the late nineteen eighties, but the Vikings were one of those teams. The rest of your roster is intact. So I'm talking about not only the nineteen eighty nine season in which this episode is based on the Herschel Walker trade, but that whole era of Vikings football. Your quarterback starved. You're kind of in the you know the post Tommy Kramer era. Rich Gannon was in the early 90s. Rich Gannon was on your roster as a developmental guy, but he really didn't play for like three years. And then you kind of you thrust him in there in like 92 or whatever year it was. And so you've got all these pieces together. You've got a couple Hall of Fame pass rush guys. And, and you've got, if you don't trade Herschel Walker, you've got first round picks, second round picks, third round picks. Now, the 1990 through 1992 period, the years that you gave up those draft picks in this trade, that was mostly a, a barren wasteland for quarterbacks in the draft, which we can get to. But in 1991, again, when you've got Hall of Famers on your roster and you're competitive, you know, with or without Herschel Walker, you're going to be a competitive team in that, in that era. There was a guy that would have been right between the Vikings' first and second round picks in 1991, quarterback, that would have changed everything for this franchise. His name is Brett Favre. I know, yeah, I knew you were going. Brett Favre that. was drafted by the Atlanta Falcons between where the Vikings' first and second round picks would have been in 1991. And I'm just, I'm just trying to put myself in their shoes. If they don't make that Herschel Walker trade, and they've still got that defense, or at least most of the key components to that defense, and they've got, I believe Randall McDaniel was, I, I can't remember what year he was picked, but like it's right in that sweet spot where, man, if you just add a quarterback to this thing, you got Chris Carter. Uh, you got you got tight ends. Could you imagine if they went into those drafts and had those draft picks and were thinking quarterback? Now there's a couple other guys like Todd Marinovich was in was a first round pick in one of those drafts, and there's a, there's a bunch of busts. But could you imagine an alternate universe in which a quarterback starved Vikings team after Tommy Kramer's era is over picks Brett Favre from Southern Mississippi in 1991? That's hilarious. Um, I actually though with the Vikings administration at that time, I couldn't have seen it because I think there were enough red flags about Favre that they, they would have been scared off. Like the Moren- the Morenovich pick, it, in a heartbeat, they'd be like, oh, Todd Morenovich, this is great. His dad's developed him. Um, but I don't think that 
the Vikings at that time were savvy enough to see through the, the problems. I mean, keep in mind, too, that this was an era where if there were any red flags about a guy's drinking or problems, you got really scared. I'll, I'll always go back to the, what, 95, 96 draft when they passed on Warren Sapp, and a lot of teams did because, oh, my God, Warren Sapp might have failed, I think, a marijuana test or something. Yeah. Um, so the question's great fun. I don't think the Vikings ever would have had the the wherewithal or the gall to pick Favre. I also don't know that Favre would have fared any better here than he did with the Falcons. Because Green Bay, when they ultimately got him, did give him some sort of infrastructure. And Ron Wolf was an executive probably ahead of his time. Um I love the idea. I don't know it would have worked here, and I don't think they would have had the guts to do it here. Would it have worked with Denny, though, if they would have taken Favre in 91, and then, let's say, Burnsy moves on, they bring in Denny? You know, Denny didn't have real patience for quarterbacks, though. You look Mm. at Gannon, for instance. They ran Gannon through here, and they ran him through quick, and then he would switch to a guy like Sean Sean Salisbury. Salisbury. So, I mean, I think Denny Denny had a really good offensive mind, and I think that when it came to identifying personnel, he was really good. But I don't know early on in his coaching career here that he would have tolerated Favre. And that was the problem. The Falcon, Jerry Glanville didn't tolerate him, basically. It's like, dude, you're always drunk. What's your problem? So I don't think Denny at that time could have. I I think that Denny, who was very patient with Moss, was, what, six years in, seven years in. I think that Denny out of Stanford would have taken one look at Brett drunk in the gutter and been like, uh-uh, this ain't going to work for me. I guess that makes sense because Denny, you, you look at Denny's run, he didn't really embrace like young quarterbacks until they took Dante in 99. Right, and that was, was always a, yes. it was always the older veteran guys, Warren Moon, Randall Cunningham. He wanted Brad guys Johnson. he could trust. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll go back again. He started Sean Salisbury at one point. Like, think about that. <laughs> God bless him. Sean's a good guy. Was a great media guy, but he started games with the Vikings. I mean, you think about that, and like I, I said earlier, scenario. you know that a lot of those teams in that era and going back into the seventies were just running guys out there at quarterback. There weren't. It's not like now where you could point to twenty quarterbacks and say, "Wow, that guy's that guy had a stud season," or "That guy's going to be a Hall of Famer." You know, in the eighties, it was Joe Montana, it was John Elway, it was Dan Marino, and maybe like two or three other guys, like Phil Sims and a couple other guys, but. The guys that the Vikings were running out, Wade Wilson, you know, just just a guy, just you know. But back then he was pretty solid. But but, but like but, he was perceived as being solid enough. We we didn't we didn't think of the rest of the quarterbacks as being as insufficient as we do now. If that makes sense, like you looked at Marino as a god, but you thought to yourself, you'll never get one of those. And it's like a lot of teams didn't even really try. I, there probably weren't even I mean, pipelines they, for developing. They kept starting right? Tommy Kramer. Burnsy loved Tommy. Is it fair to say that, okay, so in today's NFL, we view correctly, and I think analytics and, and Vegas odds makers would say this too, that quarterbacks are up here 10 rungs above the next valuable position, right? It's just your quarterback, your quarterback, your quarterback, your quarterback, and then like your left tackle, and then a pass rusher and, and a cornerback that you can – Using man coverage is those are the probably the next three, maybe your center, and and then you get to some of the during this time period, Herschel Walker and Eric Dickerson and these bell cow running backs. From what you remember, Judd, 
were those running backs viewed as being just as valuable as a like like if you had Dan Marino and Herschel Walker next to each other in 1986? Were those two guys equally valuable in the eyes of people that followed the NFL? I think in the eyes of most fans, yes, absolutely. Because today, if you put oh yeah, be Pat nuts. Mahomes right. and Zeke Elliott, yeah, no, I mean, Zeke Elliott's amazing. But Pat Mahomes is ten times more valuable to to winning. I think at the time too, and, and keep in mind too, the other thing that's important to point out is back then there was never any type of assumption that your quarterback would play sixteen games. Guys got hurt constantly. Yeah, look at Kramer and Wilson. They're going back and forth because they're getting hurt. Yeah, I mean, how, think about how many times throughout the course of a game, even that, hey, the whistle blew or the you know the ball gets out of your hands and you get two or three extra steps to drill a guy with no penalty. <laughs> I once watched a, a game from Met Stadium. It was the Rams and Vikings, and I'm not kidding you, where Tommy Kramer convulsed on the field. Okay, <sighs> like he was convulsing on the field. I think he might have come back in that day. I'm not quite sure, <laughs> but the point being is, you know, now. And I, I think it's very fair, but now you protect these guys at, at all costs because of their value to the game itself and to the fans who watch the game. And, you know, you, you, there were a lot of years I felt that you'd go into a season thinking to yourself, oh, if quarterback starts 13 games, that's pretty damn good. Yeah. And, and so, so before they protected these guys, I think there was also a feeling of guys like Walker and these bell cow backs who could take a beating and probably not get hurt. They might rip their knee up. But if they got concussed, they just came back. So there was a value put on the fact that you could essentially feed these guys the ball constantly. And and the stats today are hilariously funny. But back then, it was just like, but this is my bell cow. I wonder, too, to your point about you know why, why Denny may not have been into having a guy like Brett Favre on his roster if, if so many of the coaches in the 80s they were not as fixated on getting the rock star, superstar quarterback. They just wanted a guy that they could trust. They just wanted a guy that was, I just want this quarterback. He might not be great, but he's not going to lose me eater, right? games. Yeah. Carl Pavano quarterbacks, yep. right? Yep. He's going to go out and grind for me. <laughs> yep. No, I, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the last few minutes here of, of this Herschel Walker episode of Minnesota Sports Rewind, I just pulled up the 1990, 91, and 92 drafts, and I just want to throw – because the Vikings didn't have draft picks in the first and second round and in third. I'm just going to throw some names out that that went in and around the places where the Vikings could have picked. So okay. so they could have had players like these. Well, Emmett Smith, for one. Emmett Smith was a first-round pick. In he was pretty good, I think. Later on in the first round. Uh, Rodney Hampton, solid running back yeah. for the New York the Giants. Giants yeah. Rob Moore, who went on to – I think he, he had a few thousand-yard seasons later on in the – uh, was it with the Lions in the 1990s, I want to say? They had uh, Herman Moore. Herman Moore, you're thinking. But, Ro- but Rob, Rob Moore had Moore a few was, decent seasons. Uh, Cardinals? Cardinals, I think. I remember with the Cardinals. Yeah, Cardinals most of the time. Yeah. Leroy Butler was a second-round pick right around where the Vikings would have picked in 1990. Borderline Hall of Fame guy. Not bad, the secondary. Let's see here. Uh, well, Herman Moore went in 1991. Ted Washington, oh, big defensive Ted. tackle. Love Ted Washington. Big Ted, yeah. Ricky Waters. Second round pick he was in 1991. <laughs> Brett Favre, we already talked about. Chris Zorich, remember him? Defensive tackle from Notre Dame, went to the oh, Bears. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he was yeah. a pro bowler at one point. Yeah. Vikings also could have had Chester McLaughlin yeah. in 1992. They could have had, uh, is it was it uh, Bobby Porsche? 
Or oh, Robert Robert Porsche, yeah, Robert defensive Porsche. end Detroit. from the end with Detroit, yeah, the Lions. Daryl Williams, safety to the to the Bengals in the late part of the first round, nineteen ninety two. Um, Darren Darren Woodson went to the Cowboys in the second round of the nineteen ninety two draft. Mm-hmm. He was pretty so, good. So they could have had Levon Kirkland, he linebacker for the Steelers in the nineteen nineties. So they they could have had a number of these different players, but. But yeah, any other final thoughts from you guys on the the most prominent trade you could say probably in NFL history, the Herschel Walker trade? Don't trade for running backs. Don't give up high <laughs> draft picks for running backs. Don't do it. I've thought about your question more. Question one about the fleecing, and I will say this. The Saints one of basically trading your whole draft is awful, but I think it. now that I think about it more, you might be right. It might be the worst fleecing because I think the word fleece implies that you that you got had too. Like didn't just make a bad deal, but got had. And Mike Lynn definitely got had. I mean, Mike Lynn was operating under an assumption that I'm giving up a couple draft picks and I'm attaching draft picks, but I'll never lose those draft picks. And Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones worked the Vikings. I mean, yeah. the, they were basically a stooge, right? So upon further review of your question, it might be the worst just based on that. Yeah, because the Saints knew what the price of poker, like they knew what yeah. they were doing. It was stupid, but they knew. And Washington didn't really do much with all those picks yeah. they got. The Vikings, the but the Vikings literally thought, "Oh, this is great. We're not giving yeah. up as many draft picks," you know. And the Cowboys are like, "Oh no, you are." Yeah, that's true. I mean, <laughs> so, if you're the, if you're the Saints, Mike Ditka put the Hawaiian shirt on, knew exactly what he was giving up. Mike Lynn, not so much in 1989. I'm Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad, Manny Hill, and this has been Minnesota Sports Rewind, the Herschel Walker trade episode. If you like Minnesota Sports Rewind, subscribe to the podcast feed on Apple or Spotify and give us a five-star review and leave a comment. It helps spread the word about this show. And, uh, again, thanks for listening, and be on the lookout for more episodes of Minnesota Sports Rewind.